0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds from Stokes Family Office.
1: This is Greg Stokes and Doug Stokes with Lanyap podcast. This is the first podcast we've had in a while without guests, and we're going to resume our normal brotherly banter. There's a lot that's happened in the last five or six weeks since we have had guests, namely the invasion of Ukraine by Russia,
2: and there's been a lot of volatility in the markets. Doug, what do you think about what's been going on? Well, I'll just talk about it from the markets side, because obviously there's the whole humanitarian crisis and discussion on what Putin's going to do next. But markets, I think one of the things that we're focusing on pre Russian invasion was sort of that disinflationary pull, meaning that there were things that were at play structurally that would cause inflation to come down over time. Namely, it was technology, it was generally capitalism, globalization, aging demographics, et cetera. And I think what we've just experienced with the invasion of Russia is sort of a dent in that sort of argument specifically around globalization. And I think that what's happening now is it's a national interest to really onshore a lot of production, whether it's of oil, of other commodities, or just manufacturing in general, because we've moved from or are moving from this world of where the US is the dominant player in the world and everybody plays by the US's rules and there's global trade and it's a global marketplace To something where you know somebody was talking about. I was listening to about just general spheres of influence and multipolarity instead of unipolarity, and basically that means that there's a group of global players and not just one in the United States. And I think that that disincentivizes globalization, and by virtue of disincentivizing globalization, I think the argument around disinflation is a difficult one now to grasp. So that's my general themes on where we were generally incorrect pre Russia invasion the new state of affairs my stance is likely less disinflationary because of less globalization
1: interestingly enough we interviewed Colin Roche probably a, he was our first guest actually so it was probably 6 or 6 or 7 weeks ago and this is predated the Ukrainian invasion and it was Colin's opinion he's an economist and he runs a, a investment advisory practice in San Diego but it was his opinion that inflation had peaked in January, but he hedged that comment with this all goes out the window if Russia invades the Ukraine and price of oil goes into the mid-100s. And, and that's basically what's happened. His prognostication that inflation has peaked is probably wouldn't stand by that. In fact, I saw that he posted on Twitter that now that it, it seems like that inflation is going to be around for a while he thinks that Chairman Powell of the Fed is going to be pretty aggressive in terms of utilizing the powers that they have to try to get inflation back into their target range, which is 2%. Inflation has been running at about 7 or 8% year over year, and that might actually increase based upon the price of oil pre all of this Russia-Ukraine stuff was in the $60, 70 $80 a barrel range, and now it's in like the mid-100 teens. Like It was about $115 a day pardon me, $115 a barrel. So it'll be interesting to see what Chairman Powell does from the standpoint of raising rates. They did their first increase in Fed funds rates by it was 25 basis points. Is that right, Doug?
2: Yeah. Chairman Powell it almost sounds like an autocrat. I guess it sort of is. He basically <laughs> controls the liquidity in the markets, but it's funny to think of it. It's like Chairman Chi and Chairman Powell. Right, exactly. So I saw the analogy that. So you've got the, you
1: remember the Evergrande, that ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal? Was it Evergrande or Evergiven? Evergiven or right, exactly. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, whatever it was. There's that meme of that excavator that was pushing the ship, trying to push <laughs> yeah. the ship that was stuck and it was not doing anything. And I saw that somebody posted that same meme, but they put 25 basis points. And was the excavator is not going to do anything, essentially pushing the ship of 8% inflation.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's likely right. I mean, how can you not have higher inflation for, especially for longer, if there's not a short-term resolution to this conflict in Ukraine? I mean, the commodity inputs now, wheat, potash, palladium, oil, obviously. Neon. Neon. I'm guessing neon. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) It is neon. Yeah. So, but
1: there's all these random commodities yeah, that Russia and Ukraine are like number one or two in the world that are essential in the economy of today, like palladium that you just mentioned. Russia produces forty percent of the palladium in, in the global markets, and apparently, I, I mean, I I know that's like a precious metal, but that's essential in electric cars. Apparently, yeah, neon is semiconductors utilize neon in, in semiconductor fabrication. Neon is
2: essential, so there's just all these inputs that you never would think about. Right. So I think the uh, longer And higher is the is sort of the narrative of today, and I think that makes a ton of sense. It's not like there wasn't inflation before this happened. That's also like, I mean, inflation has been printing at seven and eight percent pre Russia Ukraine, with the idea that it was coming down to that three to four percent, which is well above the two percent mandate for the Federal Reserve. But you know, three to four percent was sort of the predictions for next year. I think that's all, as Cullen said, all at the window and sort of reminds me of like the post Vietnam era I wasn't around for this, but basically Vietnam war just completed There's massive spending. And then there was the oil embargo from Saudi and, and OPEC related to the Yom Kippur war and the US's backing of Israel. And so that just, you know, there was the crisis around, you couldn't get your car filled up at the, at the tank and inflation was same around 10%. And that ended up leading to a recession. That's what maybe where we'll go to next. But I think that this is a similar period in which there was already pre-existing inflation. This is sort of fuel in the fire and, and now the Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell, you know, all of his authority is is going to be forced to act. For clarification purposes, the way that the
1: Fed they have two mandates. It's maintaining full employment is one of them, and then also maintaining inflation in a certain range. And they're allowed to deviate from that based upon their judgment, but essentially the inflation number that they try to maintain is around 2%. And so employment is good right now, but inflation is high. And so the way that they combat inflation is by increasing the cost to borrow money. So their objective is essentially to increase the cost of money by raising rates that, that banks have to pay. Then they pass those along to consumers and that theoretically slows down the economy and lowers inflation essentially. So they're tools that they have. They just raised rates for the first time in a couple of years, or maybe longer than that. I don't know. Probably since 2018, maybe was the first time they raised rates. They did last week. There are many additional rate increases coming, probably because that's really the only tool they have in terms of combating inflation. And the question is, how does that impact the the economy? And that very well by Chairman Powell and the Fed. Increasing rates—that's going to slow down inflation most likely, but that could also cause a recession. I mean, if you think about it, there's so many different consumer loans, mortgages, etc., that are predicated on like the Fed funds or other f- l- rates that increase. LIBOR, LIBOR, etc. That if you think about it, if the Fed raises rates one percent, and and ultimately that impacts a consumer, consumers like car note or the note on a used car or on a a variable note on a mortgage, you could very well see how that could slow down the economy and slow down inflation. But I saw actually recently Bill McBride, who is an economist that posted a couple of tweets. He said that he called a loan officer this morning to ask about their current rates. He said they're quoting 4.75% for well-qualified buyers with 20% down. And then he also said that he saw a major rate sheet from a major lender showing 5% with no points. 4%, low 4s are still possible for those with the conforming Fannie or Freddie mortgages, meaning mortgages of below a certain amount. But the jumbo mortgages like not too long ago were in the mid 2s and now they're in the mid 4s close to 5. And you can just think about how that could potentially reverberate
2: throughout the real estate market because people borrow money to buy real estate all the time. Yeah, I think the silver lining here is that, and we talked about this on a prior podcast, that households are in fantastic shape and debt service payments, specifically mortgage, as a percent of disposable income were at all time lows. Yeah, I think that's a great point before rates creeped up. So I. The household is in good shape. I think it obviously anytime if you're saying, "Well, what is it going to take to maintain that same level of payment? How much debt can I take out to make if I was paying $1,000 a month before at a 2.5% rate and I still want to pay $1,000 a month, but now the rates are 5%, what happens to the value of that that piece of real estate? It obviously have to come down pretty dramatically." But I do think just from a structural perspective, household balance sheets are in good shape and can withstand a higher debt service payment as a percentage of disposable income, but but that also means that they can't spend money on more consumption oriented goods, which is that inflation discussion. And that really leads to the other piece is how much of this is really the inflation piece is really demand driven versus supply driven. I think what we were talking about before Russia, Ukraine was it was it was very much, a supply demand mismatch and which demand really recovered to pre-pandemic levels and supply chains were difficult to come back online that demand really hasn't left but now supply chains and supply in general has basically been completely disrupted and so i think the solution to that is pull supply i mean is pull demand down and you do that by higher interest rates so one of the interesting things that i saw on
1: the whole Russia-Ukraine situation has really developed tremendously. I think the the war has been at this point has been going on for like twenty-five days or something like that. And I think that the I saw something else on Twitter recently that the odds. I don't know who exactly produced this specific. Let's see. This is this is this is according to Derek Thompson on Twitter, but he said that the prediction market odds that Kiev would fall to Russia by April twenty-two has declined from 85% at the beginning of the war to just 2% today. And Russia's military is reportedly on track to lose more soldiers in two months than it lost in the entire Soviet-Afghan war. So it'll be interesting to see how long this goes on. Obviously Russia is not faring nearly as well as what the odds were before the worst started. And who knows if this is going to be a protracted situation, if this is going to be a protracted supply problems. I saw uh, interestingly we've mentioned like the the issues that we we are facing in a developed world from the standpoint of commodities that are used in important products like palladium that's inc- included in car batteries neon that's included in the fabrication of semiconductors semiconductors are in every electronic device essentially but one of the things I saw in the developing world that is a potential big risk of related to this conflict is Russia and the Ukraine together account for like a very large percentage of the production of wheat in the world? And a large percentage of that wheat goes to developing economies like Egypt and the Middle East, et cetera. And those places could have issues related to feeding their populations. So there's a lot of potential things that are going on. And that and that's really what if you look back at the Arab Spring and like mid-2010s, that was all predicated on inflation. People being hungry, et cetera. So there's all all different types of things that could happen as a result of this. But obviously, Russia is not doing as well as the, what the market anticipated at the outset. And it'll be interesting to see. Hope this is going to be protracted, or if this war is going to going come to an end relatively soon. But obviously, there's a, it has a tremendous impact on inflation that we're dealing with in, in our in our lives, and also um, what people are dealing with in, in developing world as well too. Yeah,
2: I think going as far as like total war and global conflict and like maybe take a step before that occurs and saying what's sort of the worst outcome minus world war three i think it would be a protracted engagement and that which would also mean that so can't get wheat harvested to feed to export to africa in the middle east sanctions still exist on russian individuals and institutions having that extend for months and months or longer would be sort of the downside outcome i think i'm not really expecting that to happen just because there's been a lot of communication back and forth between kiev and moscow related to some sort of negotiated settlement they're not there yet but i think the worst outcome here minus a global conflict is that sort of protraction and elevated inflation and then the, all the reverberations you discussed related to famine globally. I follow a lot of like
1: military prognosticators on Twitter and their general thesis at this point obviously anything can happen and you're dealing with somebody who's ruthless in the in terms of Putin, but they're seeing more activity in the eastern part of the country where like the Donbass and Luhansk if I'm saying that correctly, And there's obviously Russia's uh, investing a lot of military strength in Mariupol, which is on the Black Sea. And the looks like from the prognosticators that I'm seeing on Twitter's perspective, Russia's shifting its aim in the war to try to have a land bridge to Crimea via Mariupol and obtain those two provinces in the east that they're fighting for sort of prior to this conflict and sort of shifting gears. And that may be an avenue for the war to end there's so many things that could happen obviously you mentioned there's the outcome as it relates to potential for utilization of weapons of mass destruction that it's anyone's guess what happens but at least it looks like from a strategic standpoint that they're sort of trying to consolidate gains in anticipation of making a deal but it all remains to be seen
2: yeah i think just the the general framework that we should have as Allocators of capital is basically – and Colin Roche said the same exact thing, that the range of outcomes is so wide here that I think diversification is the the ultimate winner in this sort of framework. Because we've even seen major rallies in stock prices post-Russia-Ukraine conflict and post-aggressiveness by Chairman Powell related to stamping out inflation and everything rallied. And so, one of the initial questions that we'll always get whenever there's any sort of volatility is like, so what should I do? Should we go to cash? And in this particular case, it was even beyond that because initially it was, you know, is this, is this going to be a all at war? But we've had major rallies in asset classes. The historical safety and in fixed income bonds are basically down just as much as stocks that are this year. So I think just the this is a perfect lesson in looking at a very wide range of outcomes and basically owning a bit of everything and you know some things don't work and some things do but over time you basically are getting a a blended result that is positive. So this is a very difficult time to make any sort of investment decision just because it's like a, it could be as far as weapons of mass destruction or as complete other side they could make a deal next week and everything basically comes down. It's
1: pretty interesting to me to see that. So basically for almost for our entire career in this industry, oil and oil stocks were the absolute dogs. We talked about this in our diversification quilt discussion. I don't know a while back on another podcast, but if you looked at the, in the diversification quilt example that we talked about, that commodities were at the, of that quilt, they were at the bottom, almost like clockwork over the last decade. They had like one year that they were up and it was actually last year. They did fared better than most other parts in the diversification quote, like large caps, US stocks, international, etc. But the oil and commodities really have been vindicated as an asset class the last couple of years. And it really goes to show the importance of diversification to your point, because the human instinct is to go with what's worked in the past.
2: And that absolutely has not worked in the past, but it's working like magic this year. Yeah, nobody wanted to own Chevron or Exxon for the last seven years and now people are asking about it which is sort of typical we were in a year ago the big question was all these high growth tech and software stocks and nobody's really talking about those anymore right <laughs> yeah like i just remember the names of some of those things like lemonade
1: and data dog and anything it's crazy to see like those a lot of those stocks are off 75 80 percent from their highs and you've got companies like exxon yeah. chevron that are up
2: 300 percent from their lows the funny thing is you you have like there was a company called Upstart and that is like some they basically have a a model that's different than like the fico score to be able to underwrite potential loans to people but there's some guy that bought the stock and went on CNBC and the CNBC analyst said what do they do and the guy <laughs> the guy acted like he couldn't hear the question. Yeah, right. He had no clue. <laughs> I mean, these were complete bubble stocks and people were buying these companies because they were going up every single day and that just turned. And so, you know, sometimes it's good to own those, sometimes it's not, but the whole idea is own a little bit of everything and and get a, not always the best result, but some sort of serviceable result.
1: Yeah. One of those companies was Peloton. So, they got, and it got up to $170 a share. I remember because I owned it for a time in the pandemic and I personally bought it because it was I was on my Peloton all the time because so there was nothing else to do all day, and I couldn't go anywhere. But I can't even remember the last time I got on my Peloton. Now I can't even
2: even the thought of it sounds horrible. We sort of glossed over recession before we close. I want to talk about that because I think that that's a, a scary term. And then that you can go is like, is it a deep recession? Is it a shallow recession? And or is there going to be a recession at all? So or are we in a recession right now? Yeah. Let's assume that the solution to the problem that we have right now, related to high inflation, high commodity prices, is the Federal Reserve reacts so aggressively to the point where they're actually trying to cause a reset via recession. And that's scary. So, what happens to asset prices in recessionary environments? So, I'm going to
1: read it. This is directly from a, a post that Ben Carlson wrote. This is from 2019, but he said, this is, this is just statistical, but the longest recession since World War II clocked, was the longest one. It clocked in at 18 months in duration. Since 1945, recessions have lasted an average of 11 months with, an, with a 2.3% average decline in GDP or gross domestic product. And he said, here's something you probably didn't know about recessions. Then he goes to list the recessions, like for example, February 1945 to October 1945 and the S&P... 500 performance during the recessions. And from February 1945 to October 1945 during the recession, the S&P 500 returned positive 27.7%. And then it goes to list off the 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 recessions that occurred between 1945 and present and in uh and on average during recessions, the S&P 500 returned an average of 3.8% during a recession.
2: So a ton of volatility, but a positive outcome from start to finish. And obviously, does he go through like what happens to the five years after that or anything like that? Yeah, he does. So in the five-year period, on it, so on a one-year basis, the average
1: return after a recession, post-recession, once the recession is over, is 15.3%. These are cumulative returns. The three-year plus three years is 45.84%. And plus five years is is 120.33%. And he said, there wasn't a single three or five-year period following a recession where stocks weren't up and five out of the past 11 recessions saw the S&P 500 rise triple digits over the ensuing five years. And he says, buying stocks during a recession will always feel like a layup in the
2: rearview mirror, but it can be extremely difficult at the time not only just buying stocks but not selling stocks which is sort of a framework for how we design portfolios which is you mentioned 3 and 5 years and we always like to say we like to have 3 to 5 years of cash flow needs if you're needing cash flow set aside in fixed income to be able to weather that storm because you get the best results historically through you know, from the bottom of the recession and bear mark, you know, subsequent bear market to the top, and you don't want to sell during that period. But if you're somebody that's saving in your four hundred and one k plan, if you're young, if you've got a five twenty nine plan with kids, I mean, these are scary times, and and you just have to go through this sort of period with that sort of mindset that using history as a guide and making those decisions that are tough to make. Yeah, I think that Morgan Housel, who we you and I have previously spoken to, who is
1: a, a best selling author he wrote The Psychology of Money for anybody who's looking for a really good read. That's a really easy read as well too. But what he said is that the volatility that you have to deal with in stocks is the price of admission for the returns that are associated with stocks. And I think that makes total sense from the standpoint of the only reason why you get good returns is because you have to risk something associated with that. And
2: that's the return that you get. Yep. So with that, I think we should wrap it up. We're coming up on 30 minutes, but I think the overarching theme is nobody knows nothing and own a diversified asset, diversified portfolio of different asset classes because uh, the range of outcomes is wide and and during recessionary periods doesn't necessarily mean that everything goes to hell as, as Ben Carlson laid out. So hope everyone has a great rest of your day and please share this with friends and family and like and subscribe and all those other things that push us more to the top of Apple and Spotify podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.